Welcome back. This is Lyle Larson. You're listening to the Passionately Devoted Podcast. Uh, I am Lyle, the pastor at First Baptist Church in Goodlessville, Tennessee. Here as always with my uh, partner, Noah. Hey, hey, how's it going? Uh, And today we're going to kind of continue some discussion from our sermon on Sunday. Um, By the way, if you are listening to our podcast and are not part of our church or don't know exactly where to go find the sermons that we're talking about, you can just go to fbcgoodlitzville.com. There's a link on there that says sermons or messages, and you just click on that and it'll take you to the page to do that. And So this past Sunday, we um, continued our series of messages on Elijah with um, a rather remarkable miracle. So, Noah, won't you share a little bit about kind of how the sermon hits you Sunday, or, or what we were talking about? Yeah. So, great sermon, by the way. Um, I think this is going to be a series that our people are really going to love, and I've already uh, started to love. You know, everything that you're diving into, and you know, honestly, Elijah is one of those characters where you think you know more about him than you actually do. Right. And then you go back and you read and you study and you do a series like this and there's things that hop out. And so I think the biggest thing for me is I never... I, I knew the story that you shared of how he raised the widow's son. I knew right. that story. But I, I, I don't know if maybe you do this sometimes. I know that I do this and maybe some of our listeners do this where... You read over a passage maybe in uh, read the Bible in a year plan or whatever the case may be, and you just read over it, and you go, okay, cool story, yeah. and you just miss so many implications right. that that story has. Right. And so the, the things that you kind of pulled out of this story of Elijah raising the widow's son to me was just kind of like, wow, I feel like I've read that text wrong my whole life yeah. until now. And so the biggest thing for me was the process and how he raised the widow, the widow's son from the dead, right? Um, and kind of the parallels that you talked about. So yeah, and it's you know, it's a fascinating story because you have initially at this time this widow that God uses from a pagan land, from a pagan environment and background. Who is not a follower, as we can tell from as we as far as we know, has no relationship follow of, of Yahweh, of the one true God. And Elijah comes into her life and he provides all this food for her in a desolate, barren land. <clears throat> and she thinks, boy, everything's going great, everything's wonderful. And then her son dies. And she's like, What in the world to do with that? And so Elijah obviously is gonna raise um Elijah's gonna raise the son from the dead. Elijah's not, God is through him. But the process of that was interesting to me, too, as I kind of looked into it. So he takes him out of his mother's arms. That picture there, I'd never really seen that picture, Noah, of it says that he took her from her arms. And so this picture of a mom holding her dead son, you know, and the sermon we preached on Mother's Day. And so just like there was an emotional kind of moment to that. Takes him up to wherever he's staying in the upper rooms, all it tells us. He's there, lays him out on his bed. Right, and then you have this weird scene. Right, Right. you just read stuff in the Bible. Sometimes you're like, okay, but when you actually think about it, I mean, he's stretching out. the The picture is literally he's laying on top of him, stretching out. Now I don't know how old the child is. I don't know that it makes it any less awkward or weird if he's (laughs) ten or twenty five or fifty. But he's laying over him, and he basically says, "God, you brought me here." Why did she lose her son when she has been the one that you've used to provide for me? And the picture there really is of of Elijah saying, 
impart my life into him. Yeah. Impart my life into this child's life. A sacrifice. A sacrifice almost. And not saying take my life, but like impart my life into him. You have him doing it three times, which is the in Scripture is the symbol of kind of resurrection or restoration. Yeah. With the resurrection of Jesus, obviously, on the third day. But also Jonah is there. We know three is a symbolic number of kind of completeness. Yeah. And so it's not just a one-time thing. It's a three-time thing. Um, and it's all just kind of showing that God's going to do this. And I do think it's interesting in that midst the parallels that happen with Jesus. And I know you found, Noah, some of that to be kind of interesting about what happens with Jesus over in the book of Luke, right? Yeah, because, and this is another thing that I never thought of until then, but you look at Jesus and the sermon that he preached that got him ran out of town. Right. Basically, he closed the scroll and had to run. That's right. basically how it worked. He was preaching on Elijah. He's preaching on Elijah, yeah. So he goes to Nazareth and begins to preach. It's in Luke chapter 4. And so Luke Luke is what is the gospel that takes the longest to get going. Yeah. You know, and so you have the, the full birth account, and yeah. then it comes to the genealogy. And so you're in Luke chapter 4, and he begins to preach in his hometown, and the people are not listening. They don't want to do that. They're like, no, this isn't. And what they actually say to him is, that's Joseph's boy. Yeah, like, the carpenter's boy. This is the carpenter's son. What, what's he doing saying he's like the Messiah? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a little Jesus, like uh-huh. you know, um, you know the pat on the head kind of guy, and then so he ramps up and says, "Listen, if you're not gonna," and he says, "A prophet is what." This is where he says, "A prophet is not honor only in his hometown." Like yeah. if you're not gonna accept me, then then I'm gonna tell you something even worse, and that is that God has come to give His message of salvation to all, not just to you. And if you reject the message, He will overlook you. Yeah, is the kind of the premise there, and so. When he does that, it says that he said to them, don't you think there were some widows that wanted some food in in Israel? Yeah. But God didn't send Elijah to them. He sent them to the pagan woman in Sidon. Which is really interesting because you see just a little bit later on, what does Jesus do? Right, right. So he does that, and then one of his first miracles there is to raise a widow's son. Yeah. And so the parallel is obvious that he is saying that I am, because they believe that the next Messiah would be the second coming of Elijah. Elijah. Mm-hmm. And Moses. They had all these kind of they things. They even asked him. Yeah. Are you Elijah? Yeah. yeah. And when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of his Peter's responses was. Some that. say Elijah. Some say Elijah. You've come back because there was this idea that Elijah was coming back. And so Jesus is obviously showing that, hey, this is this is in the power of, um, the power of God to overcome death, which no other God of his day or our day has the power to overcome death. You know, that our God, and I don't say that no other God as in there are actually other gods. You right. know what I'm saying? That our God is the God and he has power over all, including death. Yeah. Now, backing up a little bit before the miracle takes place where Elijah, um, God uses Elijah to raise the widow's son from the dead. There's something interesting that happens when the boy dies um, the the widow has an interesting response and kind of a shift in how she looks at Elijah. Right, um, right. So, so talk a little bit about that. And in the context of, I think you even said this uh, Sunday in your sermon, that sometimes our circumstances determine the theology that, that we have. Right. And, and in, a, in a layman's term, when trials come, the world starts to see who we really are. Right. And so uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what we can learn from that text, uh, how, how 
you know, these trials, the, 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 the widow's son is dead. And then you get a picture into kind of her belief system and kind of, if you can, make that uh, culturally relevant for us. And what are some things that, you know, tips or some wisdom that you can give us like, hey, um, when, when trials come, here's some things that you can be looking for to see, okay, maybe this is where I need to grow. This is some, you know, area that I need some help in. So, you know, talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, so she obviously loses her son. Now, we have to realize, and sometimes you have to understand the cultural situation that was going on. This woman lived in a culture where they expected the gods to provide for them if they did what the god wanted them to do. And so that's the whole Baal worship thing, is if you do what Baal wants you to do, he'll send rain. And so it's like she just transferred that if I have enough faith, if you will, in today's time, if I will do the right things, if I will act the right way, God will reward me. And so when her son dies, she's like, wait a minute, I thought I was doing the right thing. This man of God, and, and what is kind of ambiguous here is, is she claiming he's not a man of God? Is that a sarcastic, hey, man of God? Right. What's going on with my thing? Or if she's saying, you got to figure this out because you're his representative and he has not treated me well. Yeah. But it is obvious in this case, whatever it is, she says, what do you have to do with me? Get away from me, mm-hmm. basically, is the idea. So what is obvious in this situation is that she no longer believes in the power of God to do good for her. Yeah. And she's allowed the circumstances, which, listen, that's a big circumstance. Obviously, That's a yeah. major thing in her life that her son died. She's allowed that to take over her life, and she is no longer trusting in him like she did modern day how we think about that one of the things that i i listened to a sermon from tony evans in preparation for this and tony did a really great job of kind of saying in there one of the ways that this shows up in our own life is how we are always waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah like something good happens in our life and we have this um this idea that we're not good enough to deserve that. Too good to be true. Too good to be true, and we're waiting for the other thing to come. Mm-hmm. This woman had food provided for her and a famine that nobody else had, but then her son died, and we kind of we kind of live that way. So we live tentatively. We live scared. We live. That's not really faith. That's living life um, expecting something else. Um, the, the other way is just reality. Most of us, if we look back on our life and think about, and there may be even somebody listening today that is in this place right now, where we doubt the goodness of God, or we doubt who God is, or we wonder if he is worth following, almost all of those are linked in our lives to some event that went differently than we thought it should go. Yeah, A death of a loved one, an illness in our own life, the loss of a job. Um, productivity going down, a health scare. Something happens in our life, something taking away from us that we're like, a good God would never do that to me. And that is just another example of us allowing our circumstances to determine our theology. Instead of saying, like Paul would say in the New Testament, listen, um, I've had lots and I've had nothing. And I've learned that in excess or in need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live in all ways through him. That's a good word. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. And uh, this is the time of the podcast when normally in most places people have ads or sponsors. And Noah, we're still, uh, I don't even know how many weeks into this thing we are. We're several weeks into this. And uh, we still don't have a sponsor yet. You haven't gotten any calls this week, have you, Noah? 
Well, I haven't gotten any calls where they they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And so we're the reason why we don't have an ad and or a sponsor yet is we're just holding out on Spotify. Right, right. Well, it's Spotify, Elon. You're yeah. waiting on Elon. Yeah, you're waiting one on of those things. Tesla. This podcast is brought to you by <laughs> Tesla Motors. I don't think we can even say that technically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we do here is give some shout outs or recommendations. Hey, I want to recommend something to you this week uh, that would be great for summer reading for your kids, or for, if you have kids, reading to your kids, especially if they're. Um, elementary school age, um, but if your kids are, are teenagers or in that area, they ought, they ought to read it. Uh, we are actually reading as a staff, and that is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And so, no, I know you're a big fan of Chronicles of Narnia, so talk a little bit about why you think that'd be a great thing to read this summer for families that haven't read it, or maybe those that have read it already. Yeah, so one, I would say, for the people who have never read it, um, even if you were not a Christian, and this was not a Christian um, story, it's still very interesting. It's great content, great read for your kids. And also for the person, I think, who um, has read it before, but maybe it's been a while. I'll tell you this. Every time I reread the Chronicles of Narnia, I see something new that Lewis is introducing through it. And the, the most amazing thing about the Chronicles of Narnia is it, it, it shares the gospel. It, it's this huge allegory. And Lewis... You know, he claims that he didn't have these kind of, you know, motives in mind when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but it's obvious about yeah. Aslan. It's, and these it's, things, it's yeah. the ultimate example of your worldview comes through in exactly. your writing. And so I would say if you haven't read it or if you've read it, but you when the when you read it, maybe you weren't looking with a biblical lens. You weren't yeah. reading with your biblical lens on. Reread that thing and look for pictures of Jesus inside. All right, we're about to get controversial just for a moment. Okay. If they're going to read Chronicles of Narnia, what's the first book they need to read? So there, those of you that yeah. don't know, we're going to get nerdy for a second, yeah. geeky. There's a big debate on whether you read one book or the other first. So, Noah, what's your... So if you decide to pick up the, the box set of all the books, and they're going to be numbered. Here, here's the thing. If you start off reading The Magician's Nephew, you're actually doing it wrong. And so you have to start off with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. However, if you want to read along with the staff, what are we starting off with? Well, yeah, my jaw just dropped over here because I am a chron I'm a chronological reader. Uh, and so here's the deal. C.S. Lewis wrote Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, released it, and then wrote Magician's Nephew as a prequel all right and so this is uh this is a star wars trilogy kind of question do you read <laughs> you watch the original first and the prequel and star wars i'm a watch the original trilogy then go back and get the prequels in narnia i am read magician's nephew first yep. and then go it really doesn't matter no but go go read it it's a great read i will say that if you if you say i can't read seven books okay skip the horse and his boy yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's not really related to the rest of the story. Come back and read that at the end. But uh, that's our recommendation for this week. Go get the Chronicles of Narnia. Listen to them this summer. Read them. Do something with them. All right? Awesome. And we're back. Hey, Pastor Law, question. Yeah. Are you competitive? I am competitive. I'm less competitive than I used to be, and I think that's just age. But I've always been a pretty competitive person. What about you, Noah? You, you you seem to me like a you get after it pretty good. Yeah, in my house growing up, we always said that we played full contact Scrapple. 
Yeah. Because we, if it doesn't matter if it's baseball, it's a sport, it's eating, it's a race, whatever the case may be. And maybe this is because I grew up with siblings. Everything was a competition yeah. to me. So I love being competitive. But here's the question that I want us to spend a little time talking about. When does competitiveness go too far? And more specifically, in the life of a believer, when does competitiveness become selfish ambition? And is there such a thing as a Christian ambition? What what says you? So I think one of the reasons that I'm thinking about this, we've talked a little bit about this, is kind of what's going on in the sports world right now. NBA playoffs are going on. My son, Luke, I've mentioned this before, is a huge huge a fan. My son Luke is a huge Grizzlies fan and the Grizzlies are playing as we're recording this. But by, by the time this comes out, they're done. They may be done, yeah. but at this moment they're still in. But the first two games of that were ultra competitive and had both sides claiming um, first three games, both sides claiming dirty play on the other side. They broke the code. And so there's been some discussion about that among, you know, with Luke and and our, just in general. And uh, watching um, games um, this weekend when uh, Al Horford for the Boston Celtics, who I know to be a believer, strong believer, got dunked on and stared at, and he basically said that was the turning point, that he decided he was going to just destroy Giannis and all of them. He got mad and he turned to the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, he did, and, and had the greatest playoff game of his career. Yeah. And then afterwards, immediately was given praise and glory to Jesus Christ for all that he had, you know. And so I do. I think it's interesting in the we think about in the athletic field. Um, I think about it because we play church league softball, and sometimes my least favorite games in the world are church league softball because those ought to be Christian people out there, and I feel like the competitive because it goes over the edge, you know, yeah. in the midst of that. I think competitiveness goes over the line when you begin to devalue. Or you begin to harm, and I don't mean like they're going to lose. I don't mean emotionally I can't harm them for losing. I'm talking about physical harm. or um, So you begin to devalue or you begin to harm the other person. Yeah. Okay. And so in sports, that's easy to see. Like trash talking. Well, there's some fun trash talking. The sermon I'm doing this week uh, with Elijah, Elijah does some trash talking with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. So I think there's some fun give and take with that. If you start to get personal or you start to use language you shouldn't use, that's when it crosses the line. I think that one of the things that has to happen in competitiveness is that sometimes our competitiveness leads us to um, skew authority and not not um, surrender to the authorities that God has placed on our life and not treat the authorities that we have in a, in a proper way. Um, and then again, if you begin to devalue the person that you're competing against, whether that's on the basketball court, whether that's in a business situation, whether that's, um, whether that's in a, in a competitive uh, game of Monopoly on a Saturday night with your family, yeah. right? Like anytime you begin to devalue or harm the people that you're with, I think that it's crossed the line. So, Noah, what about you? What, how do you how do you know in your own life, like um, when you've crossed that line from acceptable competitiveness to no, that one that wasn't good. Well, uh, growing up, usually when tears started to be shed over board games, that was usually when I was like, okay, maybe yours or your family's tears. Well, we won't get into that, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that there's been a fair share of both. <laughs> um, but what was so hard for me? transitioning out of 
competitive uh, sports into the ministry is I went from a field where this kind of arrogance and this ambition and trash talking all that and all that stuff was praised and that's it was a element of how you became successful and then I did a complete 180 and went into the ministry where that should not be the case whatsoever and so I would say for me I can always tell not only when I'm demeaning others or maybe I'm treating others um, lesser than um, but also when I'm treating myself as more important than I actually yeah, that's am. A, that's a good point. And so yeah. the biggest thing for me is even in ministry, you know, people think, you know, oh, how could a preacher be arrogant? And maybe it's just because I'm around preachers, but I know just as many arrogant preachers as I know humble preachers. Right. And I think the big thing uh, and the big temptation for even in ministry, um, and I think this will relate to everyday life, no matter if you're in ministry or not, is um, we are always most critical of ourselves, but we're also um, secretly most praiseworthy of ourselves. And so for me, a big thing is I have to watch myself um, wondering, okay, am I doing what I'm doing for my glory or for the glory of God? And I think that sometimes the line can be blurred between wanting to do amazing things for God but in reality, maybe we're doing it for ourselves. I used to say kind of as part of my testimony of how God kind of humbled me in the ministry is that when I surrendered to ministry, I started preaching and doing these things. What I realized is, is that when I made much of Jesus, people made much of me. And so I started, you know, giving into this temptation of I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if it's using Christ to push myself to the top. I'm going to do that. Now I look back and I realized I hurt a lot of people in that process, but the person that I hurt most was myself. Yeah. And so I think the biggest thing is when when we have this selfish ambition, which biblically you can make the case that selfish ambition is not only um, wrong, it's demonic. Right. And so when our only you know motivation in life is I have to climb up the ladder no matter what it takes, whether it's pushing people down, whether it's lying, whether it's you know being a self promoter, um, you can get into some really dangerous territory with that. Yeah, you know, it's you, you mentioned kind of the preacher thing, and that's just the world we live in. And so I know this happens in businesses and teaching yeah. and teacher relationships and all of that kind of thing. You begin to compare yourselves with other people, and there. So we we just actually as we're recording this, we just came back from an event where. Um, Willie McLaurin spoke, who is the um, president of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. I get interim president, acting president, whatever yeah, yeah. it is, while they're searching. And uh, he said an interesting thing in there. He was talking about the, the cooperative program money is up. And he says, I've always said the only honest number in a church is the deposit slip. Yeah. And I thought, well, and that's unfortunately, that's that can ring true for a couple reasons. I thought about the room we were in. And so... When you're in that room and people ask you how you're doing. Wow. Yeah. Right? The two temptations are to make it sound as good as it can sound and not to make it sound as bad as it is. Yeah. And so what I mean by that is I I don't know that I've ever been there and said, hey, man, how's it going? And somebody just goes, man, it's... I'm struggling. Yeah. Because you get in there and you're in amongst your peers and you're trying to say, man, we're good. Y'all good. We're good. And so even listening to some of the conversations around the table, hearing that, 
uh, and that comes from a place of ambition of trying to yeah. say what I'm doing is good or acceptable. And I think coming to that place of being completely comfortable in who you are and what God is doing through you allows you to have goals yeah. for sure. And and I don't know that unselfish ambition can be a thing, but if it can, I think that's biblical. And so yeah. maybe not ambition may not be the word, but goals and desires and wants. Um, you know, my life verse is Isaiah 26, 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Like, that's my ambition. Yeah. If you only use that word, is to glorify God. I say that, and I even say that here to make it, woo, listen to loud, man. He is. It's awesome. It's awesome, man. Yeah, that's way. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I live that out always. And yeah. crossing that line between selfishness, competitiveness, hurting others, making others feel worse is so easy to do. Because we're so scared to be vulnerable with other people and admit that it's our weakness. As we, you know, um, when you think about Elijah, we talked about this last week with the preparation. Elijah had to go through a period of weakness and preparation before God used him in a mighty way. Um, that Kutozer quote keeps coming back to me. You know, before God can use a man in, in a mighty way, he must break him yeah. uh, in a mighty way. And yeah. so I, I think that Christian ambition isn't necessarily an oxymoron, but man, it's really hard to do that line. When you're on the basketball court and you're being competitive, when you're in the business thing, I think give everything you've got, go all that you can. It's okay to have fun with it. It's okay yeah. to it's okay to go up and, and try to do your best. You can't worry about other people's feelings when you're on the basketball yeah. court about how they feel. But you do have to worry about demeaning them or crossing that line. And don't you think and, and I know this for a fact coming from me personally, something that's so refreshing is seeing someone who has maybe every right to you know have yeah. a little pep in their step and have a little strut, but they're just humble. Yeah. Something that always sticks with me, um, I remember I was sitting at a luncheon, kind of like we went to today, and a pastor, an older pastor, some of you may know who Junior Hill is, um, I remember they, the, the talk was about academics, and you know they were just praising him for all his academic works and all this. But then Junior Hill, in his dry sense of humor kind of way, he gets up in front of everyone. He says, yeah, I got one of them PhDs, but you know all a PhD is when you sound it out. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, if he can be humble about yeah. all his accolades... I don't want to be the guy who, you know, has this big inflated head of all the things that he's done. I want to be the guy who says, I've accomplished a lot, but it hasn't gone yeah. to my head. Yeah, well, it hasn't gone to my head. And it's God has used it for his glory, and exactly. it is not me doing it for sure. Right. So, all right. Thanks, Noah. Enjoyed the conversation today. Appreciate you joining us on this podcast. This has been Passionately Devoted. Thank you for listening with us, especially thank you if you made it to the end here. We'd love to have any questions, comments that you may have. Passionately Devoted at fbcgillettsville.com. That's Passionately Devoted at fbcgillettsville.com. Really appreciate you listening. We look forward to seeing you next week.